Hello, hello, hello. It is day 42 of the 7 a.m. Novelist 50 Day Writing Challenge, first draft edition. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. This is the last day that we're talking about the murky middle. We're finally getting out of the damn middle. And today we're talking about tension tricks with authors Desmond Hall and Erica Forensic. Uh, say hi. Desmond Hello, and Erica. Hey, Welcome, everyone. Happy Monday. Hello. Happy oh Monday. My God. <laughs> oh, my Hello. God. Devoted, Hello. Devoted, Hello. Devoted, Hello. devoted to authenticity in her craft, Erica spent weeks in the northern Maine wilderness to research her debut bestseller, The River at Night. For her hair-raisingly vivid follow-up into the jungle, Forensic uh, journeyed a hundred miles up the Amazon to experience firsthand the lush and perilous Peruvian jungle. Wow. Inspired and formed by a month-long trip to Greenland, Forensic sets the New York Times, Oprah Daily, Los Angeles Times, and Wall Street Journal's editor's pick, Girl in Ice, in one of the most unforgiving, unforgettable landscapes imaginable. So as you can tell, Erica is just a real homebody. Um, <laughs> Desmond Hall, was born in Jamaica, West Indies, and moved to Jamaica, Queens. He's the author of Your Corner Dark, a YA novel that was one of Bank Street's best YA novels of 2022, a finalist for the New England Book Award, a nominee for the Yalsa Audiobook Award, and an Essence Magazine's 19 children's book list. He's worked as both a high school teacher, uh, biology teacher, and English teacher, counseled at Rick's Teens, from Rikers Island Prison and served as Spike Lee's creative director in the advertising business. He is also an award-winning screenwriter, director, and playwright. Honestly, I, I can't even read his whole bio because it's so long and he's done so many fantastic things. And he was also named one of the 50 creatives to watch by Variety Magazine. Okay. We're talking tension chicks, tension chicks. Chicks can also be full of tension. Um, tension I know chicks. I am. Yes, and, um, and, and, and how we're reaching that, and hope we might get to the idea of the crucible today, but we'll see what happens. Okay, Erica's got a whole list of tension tricks. Um, she's coming from the thriller background. Uh, Erica, get us started. Well, I think everything should have tension and have thriller elements frankly i think shopping lists should have thriller elements okay i mean i i think i thought i don't think any thriller elements would hurt any piece of writing i mean we know that like from journalism yeah. and so on yeah so um just some notes i made only give the audience and i'm sure i think we've discussed this already but only give the audience what it absolutely must know for comprehension yeah make the reader constantly ask why um and I, I don't know who said this, but someone said, make them laugh, make them cry, but make them wait. Always make them uh, wait. And, and I think yeah. that's hard to do because instinctually we want to tell the story. We're just bursting with story and, and we sort of want to give it. And it's it's almost, to me anyway, it's slightly counterintuitive to, to hold it back. Um, so you're pasting the the exposition um, and, and you know desire and anticipation are always so much better than the thing itself. And that's another yeah. thing I think we forget. Like, you know, the best thing about Christmas is never Christmas. Christmas sucks. You know, it's like you get there, it's like, oh, is that all there is? You know, um, kind of thing. So um, yeah. yeah, and a couple other things. Um, you know, the, man, I know you've discussed this in different ways, but the quality of actions must build uh, and you need to watch at the same at the same time, later, watch out for the di diminishing returns on, you know, it's very easy to repeat ourselves, maybe not even 
exactly and what happens, but with the quality of what happens. Um, and you're wondering why does this feel thudding? <laughs> you know, why does this feel like I'm in I'm in rev? Uh, but, but I think that that's something to look for. Um, I, I, talk more about that because that's really interesting. Diminishing returns, um, meaning that you feel like you've hit the kind of same trick multiple times, or or you've hit this too much of the same note multiple times, and it's now losing its power. That that you're you're repeating instead of escalating. You're repeating instead of escalating. Um, the quality of your action, the quality of whatever ha whatever happens, um, feels the same and doesn't move the story forward yeah. in the way that the story needs to to feel. I mean, you you come to your first. I don't know. I'm just giving a crazy example, but you you come to your first murder and you're like shocked, you know, or something. Um, and then there's another one, and then there's another one. And it's like, okay, I guess everyone's going to get killed in this book. Um, I'm giving a really lame 7 a.m. example of what I'm right. trying to say, but you know, um, that kind of thing. Um, I and think, when you, and I also have a question in the chat, um, what's the difference between make them wait and withholding? Because oh withholding God, can so actually smart. get you in trouble. I can't stand it. Um, <laughs> make them wait and withholding. I think it's both, I think it's the same thing. You're, you're well, withholding information and you're making them wait. Right, um, but I think you have to plant information in order for the reader to know that we're actually even waiting for something. You set up so, some payoffs. I mean, I yeah. guess it's, you know, you're setting something up um, in whatever way you need to, whether it's usually pretty subtle because you don't yeah. want to tell, you don't want to telegraph anything. Um, but we have to have the question first because I think a lot of writers yeah. don't even give us the question, don't even right. land the question there. So I think that might, yeah. yeah. Um, and so you you land the question, you ground the question, and then you make us wait for the outcome or wait, make us wait for the for the answer. Yeah. 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 Um, so and one more question, Susan. I'm gonna that Susan Evans yeah. is asking in the chat. Eric, I'm making this very hard on you. Yes, we have okay. to think, we have to be brilliant at 7 a.m. what do you she asked, what do you mean by quality of actions? The quality of action, um, I mean, I guess I mean, it can't feel like the same thing over and over and yeah. over. Um, so you're, you have a story, it's progressing along. You as the writer, I would think, would, I mean, I'm a, I'm a solid plotter, so I know the ending. In order to get there, I, I know everything that needs to happen before. Mm -hmm. If if I'm rolling along and writing this book, and I find that even if with all my careful plotting, something that happens to the character or that the character does feels has the same impact on their on their arc, well, mm -hmm. why why repeat it? I guess that's the, the clearest way I can say it. Um, they need to be progressing emotionally. You know, there's the line of action and then there's the internal life of the character and how that is moving along. If, if an action is, uh, if an action in, 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 in resonance with the, with the inner life of the character feels the same, then, then that's, then uh, that doesn't do anything for you. Yeah, it doesn't have that quality. Yeah, and so I think, 
I also think that's something that Lisa Crone is working with when she, mm. she and her book Story Genius lays out not only what happens and the consequence in term, terms of the external world, but then she's really into this, what she calls the third rail, um, which is what is happening internally. Yeah. And why does that matter? That, that question of why that you already raised. Um, and so notice these don't sound like tension tricks, but they are because we have to feel that the story is moving forward. And if we don't feel that the story is moving forward, both in an external way and an internal way with the characters, you're gonna lose the tension and you're gonna also right. lose the trust of the reader. Right. Um, so, so that's the problem there. Excellent. Des, how about you? When you think of tension, what are some of the things you think about or grapple with? Well, um, first up, uh, I love the the idea that Robert McKee has of uh, opening up the gap between- Big McKee the, fan. Uh, yeah. yeah, go Yay. Bob. Yeah, uh, yeah when, he op when he talks about opening up the gap between expectations and results, mm -hmm. um, for that, I mean, that just blew my mind when I took the course for the fifth time. <laughs> and um, one of the things I thought about or, you know, read about that I love to do is to expose the protagonist's flaw to the protagonist. Mm. And, uh, you know, so Michelle, like in the incubator, you taught us a lot about, you know, the wounding event, you know, that horrible yeah. event that happened in childhood that, um, you know, creates the flaw. And the flaw shouldn't be so, you know, the protagonist shouldn't be aware of what that flaw is. Yeah. So it's an amazing thing when we deal with the internal stakes. Uh, if we right in the second act, maybe around the midpoint or something like that, where we need that little rocket booster, we can have the flaw become exposed a bit more, have the protagonist become a little bit more conscious of what their flaw is. And yeah, it could do something really great for the internal stakes. And I think uh, an example might be in Middlemarch, where, you know, Dorothea is like, she's, you know, very strong will, smart and all that, but she gives up a lot of her agency to marry that idiot Castlebaum, Castlebaum, Kosovo, yeah. whatever his name was. Whatever his name, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, after a while, she realizes that the guy's kind of a phony. And yeah. she, right. And then she becomes like more aware of this. And she realizes that she has this tendency to sort of destroy herself, you know, to give her agency and her selfness away. And then she, you know, becomes aware of that, you know, around the time of his death and uh, getting, you know, finding out the codicil in the will. And, you know, she begins to become herself again. So it becomes like a really cool, you know, piece in the story. And I think it resonates with us as people to yeah. sort of, you know, make us aware. Um, Interesting. I'm yeah. going to use that. I love that. Another, another technique, and, you know, McKee called it like just real simple, but um, there's a ton of ways to get to it. But just simply around the midpoint, losing an ally. Yeah. And, you're right. So just have someone that aids the protagonist in their quest for their goal, have that person disappear, die, quit, get out of there, whatever, just make them, you know, go away. So an example is like Cormac McCarthy's All the Pretty Horses, right? The adventurers John Grady and Rollins 
head down to Mexico to find themselves and their way in the world. Then they go to jail, get in fights and all this other stuff. But at a key moment, Rollins just says, I've had enough. And he gets on a train and he's out of there and he leaves John Grady to continue on his quest. And a book I just read, Anthony Doerr's All the Light We Cannot See. Yeah. Marie Lurie, the blind French girl in World yeah. War II, she gets left alone in this big house that isn't her house. You know, so, you know, with a blind person, they tend to know the nooks and crannies of a place. So she doesn't know the place yet. Dad disappears. And for a good reason, he has to protect this artifact and keep it away from the Nazis. But she's left alone. And of course, you know, there are some horrible Gestapo people looking for this artifact who are closing in on her. So, you know, she loses the ally of Pops and she has to fend for herself. And yeah. then I love this one, um, which, you know, Erica, you had mentioned it at the top, you know, setups and payoffs. Yeah. And I think both consciously and unconsciously. And mm. so consciously, uh, and a great example is John Williams's Augustus. I love that book. Uh, it's a historical fiction about the great Roman emperor. And at the start of the second act, he creates this decree where adultery is going to be met with intense consequences. So he's this great statesman, you know, creating a moral, you know, compass for Rome. And, you know, it's wonderful and he does all that. But then later in the second act, his political foes um, sort of discover that his daughter, the person he loves the most in the world, is committing adultery. Uh, you know, she married a loser, uh, found this other guy who's cool. And, you know, but then they expose it and force Augustus to act, to either, you know, do something bad to his daughter or lose that sort of moral high ground that he has with the people of Rome. So it's yeah. like a great the irreconcilable choices. The, you know, everything is, is like a paradox. Yeah. 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 That's what you want to try to get. Dig it. And, what, and the most important thing that I think about, you know, I think a lot of writers think that they can just throw event or throw incident at, at a book and, and allow that to create tension. But no matter what, it also always needs to come from the inside. And so yep. I think Erica was speaking to that the revelation of the character's flaw to themselves seems huge to me. And that's a real internal experience that can shake, like a, shake their world. Yeah, go ahead, Eric. Yeah. No, just so that's like a huge, massive turning point right there. Yeah. And absolutely. then, and, and when, you know, I guess I've heard that like in a scene, you know, every scene, each scene has a little, it's a little mini turning point, right? Yeah, and the and the real turn. So you have the action. Something happens, or something. There's action, but the real turning point is when the um, protagonist understands the implications of what has happened. Yeah, suppose yeah. I mean I don't know. Which Everything. which is what gives the which what is what gives quality to action um, when the protagonist right. understands the um, what has happened, what it really is going to mean, um, and so and I think. And so when we think about tension, you also, you have to go inward and outward at the same time, which is what can make it very difficult because some writers are better at one or the other. Mm. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, and so you probably just have to work at, at the opposite um, to, to, to really make your book work. 
Um, and just always remember the human element. So, and, and all of these things about tension are pretty, putting, make, forcing your character to be alone, forcing mm -hmm. your character to admit to their own flaws. Um, notice that it's putting a lot of pressure on the character. And I always think, I always go back to Flannery Connor's idea um, that a, a story ends only when the mystery, mystery of the character has been revealed, which means to me that you are having to crack the character open in some way to reveal their humanity to us. Mm. Um, right. And it's only when that happens that we're beginning to, to, to reach the end of the story. Um, and, and I also, I think back to, we had an interesting moment at the end of last, the last episode in which we were talking about time. And I was talking about that there's a basic anxiety involved with the passage of time. And Steve Yarbrough spoke to this and he said, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in my 60s, I'm an older writer now, I do feel the pressure or an anxiety of time. And what was interesting is mm -hmm. that we were talking about characters, but all of a sudden we went very human into Steve, into his own anxieties about the passage of time, and into I, I felt that it actually added a lot of tension um, right. to his right. own process right. Right. and his own need cool. to to get his books done. Right. So again, you're always it's a you're story always pushing, in itself. Yeah, yeah, you're always well. pushing towards the internal, even as you're adding um, yeah. uh, the external. Like yeah. so, I mean, I think most people have heard of about micro tension, and I mean that's a, yeah. that's a term yeah. spun off by Donald Moss, and who's also wonderful. Um, what do you mean by microtension? So yeah, I'm gonna, it's funny yeah. you should ask. Yes. Uh, it's right here. <laughs> Look at that. Um, so uh, this is a quote. Uh, when you create, when you create in your reader an unconscious apprehension, anxiety, worry, question, or uncertainty, then the reader will unconsciously seek to relieve that uneasiness. Um, so it's more like a simmering instead of like, not everything is like the car blows up or something like that, obviously. Right. Um, and an example, um, you know, you're creating with this chronic unease with, uh, you're usually going inside the character. Um, and Mike, and, but he also talks about microtension is, uh, is lacking often in dialogue, action, mm. exposition, weather, setting, travel violence, even sex, because unless we've all done all those things, right? <laughs> what is happening in the story with the characters that is important to underneath? Um, and the key is conflicting emotions. I mean, um, I can read this short, short, short. And what I oh. like about, one thing that I like about Moss um, is that he talks about in terms of emotion is that it's not, um, you know, I think, I think author, uh, what the characters are feeling on the page might be different than what you want your reader to be feeling or reacting to in or, response to it. There's a separation. And so I think re readers confuse that like, oh, my, my reader needs to be feeling exactly what my, my character is yeah. feeling. And, and, and there's, there can be a difference there. So the, the character might be, you know, just going along and thinking everything is, is wonderful. You know, they're marrying Bill or, or they won a million dollars. And so they're happy as clams. And yet there's a micro worry or micro tension underneath for the reader. Like, this is not going to be good. Right. right. So they what's the example? The, yeah. The readers don't read, they respond. You know, it's yeah. always, always about the reader. It's never about 
yeah with any other writer it's it's about the reader so anyway so uh, this is just a short paragraph so um Robert Gulrich wrote a book called a, Re a reliable wife this is kind of old it was like I don't know 2009 and in it the protagonist is it has has sort of gotten a mail order wife. This is 1907, Wisconsin. And um, he's lonely, he's lost his first wife. So he's, here he is, he's waiting at the train station. So Ralph stood implacable, chest out, oblivious to the cold, hardened to the gossip, his eyes fixed on the train tracks, wasting away into the distance. He was hopeful, amazed that he was hoping, hoping that he looked all right, not too old, not too stupid, or too unforgiving, hoping that the turmoil of his soul is hopeless solitude was just for this hour before the snow fell and shut them all in invisible. He had meant to be a, a good man and he was not a bad man. He had taught himself not to want after his first wanting and losing. Now he wanted something and his desire startled and enraged him. Mm. So all he did is doing standing on the train station. That's all he's doing. He's just waiting and to just put that much um tension it's like it's almost like you're describing your setting so your setting can be you know what is it about your setting that is animated um uh, you know percy has a great chapter all about animating your setting um percy, yeah. just, just putting percy, yeah. putting movement in there and i think it's all tied to to your image systems you know in your book you know what is your book about what are the image systems in your book yep. Nope. Is it dark? Is it light? But so it's everything is tied together. Um, yeah. And that's what makes it all so difficult. You have so many things to remember as a writer, right? It's like, yeah. yeah. And there's no, uh, there's no way. Again, I, I want to go back to this idea that most novelists consider every novel is broken even after publication. Oh, yeah. So it's we think, you know, you, yeah, you think you think you're going to fix all this stuff and you're just not, it's not going to happen. Yep. But there, that, college, that passage that you read. So basically I find myself worried, like, what is yeah. he going to do? Like, you know, because yeah. there's a lot of anger there. There's a lot of ang angst there. So I'm worried about that. Yeah. Um, Des, let's go back to um, some of, how are, how do you use some of these things in your own work or how do you wrangle with some of these ideas in your own work well i'm glad you asked <laughs> <laughs> the you oh. know so one of them i don't know if you remember this but in the incubator you had us all come out and meet you at kickstand cafe one by one. Oh god and i do in, remember that yeah and in 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 the session we had you you told me this thing that like blew my mind and I, you know, it was like, whoa. So one idea is if you run out of story, right? Just simply let it climax and let it happen and start a new one. So, you know, in my incubator book, my only book, the, um, you know, at a, a little after the midpoint, the, the protagonist, Frankie, you know, his, he's given up everything to save his pops and pops dies and it's you know a huge mid-act turn i thought but it was really the climax of the coming of age story and then yeah. when you and i talked about it it was like well he's gotten himself in this pickle now so now start the second story which is an institutionalized story borrowing that from uh save the cat where you know he has to get out of this horrible institution that he's gotten himself into, which is you know the gang world, 
where he had to go to get the quick money to help his dad because, you know, they're incredibly poor. And, you know, that was like a huge tension thing when you think about it. It's like a whole plot is done. So don't try to stretch it out and, you know, make things like not, you know, they're, they're not as powerful, not as tension packed. Not a, you know, the, it just doesn't have That's that. That's great. You're like listening to the story that you've already written. Yeah. And, and, and like what it's telling you. So, yeah. and it's told, and it's already there and you're sort of. And Des right. is always doing this seat. to me. Des is always saying, I've said something brilliant. I have no memory of it. Um, <laughs> so well, I love the way. Don't fight do it, Michelle. Don't but fight you it. always do it in this like calm way. While, you know, me and the other students were freaking out. <laughs> <laughs> that's because it's not my book. It's your book. And that's easy. Um, but I think what happens, I mean, you could, could look at that as a whole new plot. But what's really going on is that now there is pressure placed even more on your protagonist to fulfill his true desires and yearnings. Yeah. Um, and so because that because you do need a consistent follow through. Otherwise, we might just think that the book ends. Mm -hmm. And so I think mm -hmm. what it does is puts, puts, you know, real pressure on, is this what you really wanted? Um, and it takes it and it takes it away so that the character has to reset and refigure out like, wait a minute, my world has changed now. Um, what, yeah, and it gave what do I, me yeah. like another, so then I got a chance to come up with another inciting incident another sort yeah, of, right. uh, another crucible to bring that up for, back from the yes. top. Another midpoint turn, another, sure. you know, dark night of the soul, another <laughs> climax. So it like allowed me to go back to those, you know, sort of major plot points again and use them to keep the tension and action going. Yeah. So I, I thought that was a great thing. If you run out of story in a way, make a new story. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's all part of the same story. Yes, because and, and it, as long as it comes, that news story comes out of the character and the so again, this idea of the crucible, um, because so what is it? This is an idea from um, playwriting and you're putting all sorts of tension on your character. Um, you know, Erica, you like to put your characters out in these impossible landscapes. <laughs> and we're like, okay, this is not gonna, this is not gonna <laughs> end well. And Jez, you do too. Like your characters are facing seemingly impossible, like um, not only government, you know, corrupt governmental powers, but also um, poverty and, and, and violence. And um, so you, you're both, do not back away from doing things to your characters. Um, the issue becomes if you put so much pressure on your character, your character might just leave town. Like I'm done with this. <laughs> I'm what the hell? I'm going to Hawaii. You know why? Why? Why am I going to deal with all this stuff? Because these people are crazy, and I want to get out of town. So what you need to do is keep them locked in that desperate, difficult situation. Um, and there's a lot of ways um, to do that. It can be their sense of duty. It can simply be money. Um, there's a lot of uh, excellent stories that take place in prisons where the crucible is actually the prison walls. It could be that they don't have time. Um, so whatever, and usually the crucible, so the crucible again, and it's, and it's the idea of a pot that you've basically locked locked the uh, character in on all sides. Um, and so it will have several components to it. And that no matter what pressure you're putting on the character, they cannot escape that pot. They cannot escape that situation until they usually go inward to figure out 
the solution to breaking down those walls because usually those walls that are holding them in have to do with their own flaws, mm. um, their own mm. history, their own sense of duty, possibly to something that they shouldn't have a sense of duty yes. toward, yes. Um, you know, a sense of right and wrong that is screwed up in and of itself. Um, yeah. Um, we're going to have to go, but do you have any like no. one last words, Des and Erica? Oh my God. Um, I know it's so fast. Well, I've got one, one last one, Des, go one ahead. Last quick one. Um, so uh, Incub Andrea Mayer sent out a link to uh, Pixar writer, the guy that wrote Little Miss Sunshine. Yeah. And he spoke about thinking about the philosophical stakes of the work which was like another cool way to create tension, right? Because we generally do external and internal, yeah. but then not always the philosophical stakes. And the example he used was uh, Star Wars, where the philosophical stakes were privileging the values of the community over the individual. Yeah. And the person he used was Han Solo, right? This like international intergalactic smuggler. Uh, here he is helping to fight the, you know, uh, rebellion. But at the end of the second act, Solo is like, I'm out of here, kid. This one's too tough. Right. And it totally yeah. fits his character. And but it sets up this amazing ending. At least it was an amazing ending in 1977. Yeah, I'm told <laughs> I wasn't that old. <laughs> but uh, at the ending, Solo comes back, shoots Darth Vader's ship and does the space cowboy Yahoo thing. And you know the theater at the time went ballistic because here's this guy all in it for himself. Those philosophical stakes are baked into the whole story and baked into his character all the way through. But then at that moment when he gives the kid a last chance to save the rebellion and save the universe from galactic, you know, uh, horrible imperial powers, it just made everybody go crazy because it, it made sense, you know, for the, the way the story was. So you can privilege those, you know, philosophical stakes of community over the individual. So that right. was kind of cool. Excellent. Excellent. Erica, what do you think? Well, I don't have anything half that um, intuitive. And, and, and But anyway, so I just can say a story is a simultaneous simultaneous encounter of thought and feeling. And I think that's just a great thing to reach for. Um, yeah. And to, readers want to think and feel. And I think if you can go back and forth with that, um, it's, a great, it's, a, it's a great way to write, great way to get that done. Um, and tap into the tension between the simultaneous desire to know and versus not to know. I think that there's a little a little tension in there. I mean, you're reading the story and you want to know, but you don't want to know. So yeah, so, so, yeah, so, that is true. Because you're really like, like, please tell me. The, wait, wait, wait. Don't tell wait, me. Don't tell me. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> excellent, excellent. And tapping into that thought and the feelings of the audience is the very image of the audience at the end of that film that that Des is talking about, where the audience leaps up 
and roars for the character because the character exactly. characters yeah. moved away from selfishness more towards the the needs of the world excellent oh well okay we could go on forever and and hopefully i'll have you back sometime and we'll, we'll just keep talking um tomorrow we're going to talk more about the dark night of the soul the crisis mm. and climax with julie carrick dalton and Tara oh, Masai. Yay. And if you support what we're doing, please share, follow, and rate our 7 a.m. Novelist podcast. You can find it on Substack and other podcast platforms. And you can also find our full schedule at 7amnovelist.substack.com. Erica and Des, absolutely amazing. You wouldn't think oh, it was 7 a.m. at all. <laughs> so thank you so much. And I hope everyone has a fantastic day and is able to get to their desk and get a lot of great writing done. Thank you. Inside the wind, and you go where it tells you to go, but you never.